Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. Welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am Ian Rice here with my co-host, Mr. David Hudson. David, how you doing? Oh, Ian, uh, I'm okay. Like, we don't have anything to talk about. It's been one of the, probably the, the deadest two weeks in the history of the Black Crows universe. I know it's like you know we do this we do this thing and we try to come up with stuff and like you know they give us nothing to talk about man you know what I mean <laughs> nothing I guess we'll sit here and talk about uh, well one of the Beacon shows from ninety six ninety seven or something like that I'm sure that's what people want to hear but they want to hear us break down a set list this week yeah I mean all of a sudden we've uh, I think we've become topical which is odd uh, but uh, uh, you know as uh, I'm aware as I'm sure you're aware and we've spoken about many many times over the the last few days there's some uh there's some serious activity in the uh the black crows related universe uh that being the substantial rumor that the uh the brothers robinson are uh burying the hatchet so to speak and uh putting the band back together in whatever formation that might be how do you feel about this well i feel like we woke up the day that gorman's book came out and basically we're in bizarro world that's the only way I, I can describe it. Um, all right, let's walk this back a second because I think this is interesting. There have been several people in the online community who have basically gotten everything right since, I don't know, May or whatever. Pretty much for the 90% of what they said has has come to pass. First, you know, there were rumblings that Magpie was done. And then it was, they have gotten back together. They're going to put the album out. You know, and Ford is, is is in. Then there were these rumblings that there was something going on with the CRB and that McDougal was out. McDougal was, in fact, out. Then the rumblings were that the CRB was going on hiatus. That came out. They were going on hiatus. Then they announced High Water 2 with a, I mean, a bare-bones website. The, um, you know, it's the first time I can think of a band that I really like in a long time has offered a, a pre-order and like they're not been like t-shirts available in the pre-order with with the album as far as i know rich has only done a couple of interviews and the prospect of touring was always kind of vague maybe next year and so that obviously gets the rumor mill and you know of course you have the untimely death of neil casal and that following saturday whatever was going on between mcdougall and chris is in the past he played with the greenleaf rustlers so there started being all these rumors that the brothers Robinson were getting back together. And based on the fact that these same couple of people had been right all along, naturally I start to think there's a lot to this. And then we wake up two or three mornings ago, and irrefutable, there's Chris and Rich walking out of a restaurant together. And I know a couple of people said, how do we know when that was? Well, if you go back, Chris got a haircut about a month or so ago, and his hair is identical as it was then so i believe it's legit gorman's book comes out the buzz starts really going that the brothers are getting back together and so that's kind of where we are now the rumor now is that they've signed a contract with live nation i've seen that a couple of times and we don't know who else is in the band 
A lot of rumors running rampant on that if they are getting back together. We don't know if it's going to be a Brothers of a Feather tour, if it's going to be the full band. But it definitely, this, there's too much circumstantial evidence for something not to be brewing between the two of them. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, once I saw the uh, that uh, cell phone video of them coming out of that restaurant in Nashville, uh, you know, that was... Uh, that was confirmation for me that something was happening. Did I necessarily want something to be happening? I don't know because uh, you know, it's very it's very disappointing for me that uh, the magpie has been you know either backburnered or you know cut off entirely. I, I really was interested in the trajectory of that and how that was going to continue with High Water Two. You know that being said, you know the thing that kind of uh, put a a better spin on it for me as I thought well maybe you know just maybe Chris took something from Neil's very unfortunate passing and maybe that was a wake up call like you know I uh, I really need to reevaluate the relationships in my life and and maybe uh, see if I can put things back together with my with my brother and you know if, if if that's something that could come out of that negative you know how can you not see that as a positive really you know well, and they also may band together. They may have a common foe right now in Steve Gorman as well. That's true, but I, uh, you know, it, the timing of it is odd. I mean, it is oddly timed around the release of the book, and you know, the book which we will, of course, be getting into shortly, um, does not do either of them particularly, Chris, um, that many favors as far as image goes. So you know, so so we haven't you and I haven't actually discussed like. If they are indeed back together, are you going to see them? I'd be very dishonest to say that I wouldn't. Um, I, that being said, I don't really much care for any of the uh, lineup options that have been going around. Um, I'd almost prefer it. Somebody had mentioned this on one of the you know the various groups uh, if they went out and as a full band, but still called it Brothers of a Feather. But you know, realistically, I'm sure they're not looking to trade on that name. I'm sure they're looking to use the Black Crow's name, uh, which makes sense. It's the most, you know, commercially viable thing for the two of them. Um, you know, and another individual had also said, you know, if they go out and they do the Black Crow's thing and they make their money and then they take that and they respectively go back to their solo stuff with a lot more financial backing to to help that then how is that a bad thing necessarily and that's true you know if if uh they take a a pause on their stuff and magpie is able to come back a little bit stronger financially then uh you know who's hurt really in the end i don't know what's your take on the whole on the whole thing would you be uh you be there front row you know what I'm, I mean? I'm not even gonna pretend that i'm not um i'll be there multiple nights <clears throat> i've got a ton of vacation time i, I mean i i've I fully planned if Magpie toured in the winter to take a week and kind of follow him around. And I, I mean, I, I'm going to go see Chris sing those songs and especially with Rich, you know, I went to see as the crow flies and I had some reservations about it and, you know, I can look back and nitpick some stuff, but for those two hours when they were on stage, I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed seeing Chris sing those songs again. I enjoyed seeing him being a rock and roll front man again. And all these years in the CRB has greatly preserved his voice from a vocal standpoint as the crow flies it was the best i've ever heard him in concert and i've seen i mean, i've seen him a lot so I, i'm not even gonna i'm not even gonna try to be the cool guy like a lot of people and say oh i'm not going to see him unless so-and-so's in the lineup 
if the brothers Robinson are playing, I'm going. Yeah, I'd have to, uh, I'd have to agree with you because, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's the two of them together. And that's a, that's a fantastic thing. Um, that being said, you know, I, I just, I, I, I and again, the, it's, things right now are all speculation all rumor but some of the lineup some of the names i've heard being thrown around for the for the lineup just don't add up for me because i don't you know like one of the rumored players was uh andy hess on base now obviously tied to the crows he was uh you know he toured with them during the lions period and but it just it doesn't make sense to me why why sven wouldn't be invited uh, you know what i mean because he's been working so closely with rich uh, both solo and in the Magpie, and um, you know, I guess they they both know so many people. It's kind of probably it's probably an argument between them who's going to do what. But you almost wonder if there were some if if this does happen, if there was some bartering, if Rich is like, all right, I'll I'll let you have whoever you want on bass and drums, but I get to pick the second guitar player. Right, uh, you know, but also you know, one of the rumors going around is that it's going to be uh, Jackie and. Uh, Again, not that I have anything against Jackie, but I, I, you know, I would have ultimately liked to. I, w- I would feel more comfortable about the whole thing if uh, Mr. Ford was was there. But, you know, and, and I, I did mention this on uh, on our Facebook page, too, in a discussion. You know, if um, it could very well be that they were asked and they they chose not to. And then that's that's another piece of the story that we might not have at this point, you know. I'm going to throw somebody out that may be a dark horse. Do you know who Benji Shanks is? Um, not as well as I should, but the name is quite familiar to me. All right, so he's a guitar player from Marietta. And when um, Chris played that gig in California under the name As the Crow Flies with all the different players, he played with them. And he is big buddies with Blackberry Smoke. He actually toured with them this summer just as another guitar player. I saw him, and he is... I think really tight with Chris and he's a local boy there from Marietta. So I would keep an eye on him as a possible second guitar player. And, um, um, that's one I haven't seen mentioned, but the more I think about it, the more it kind of makes sense. Um, especially if they're not going to have like Ford or I'm there's, I I would doubt Luther's going to do it. They've got a new album coming out and Luther, you know, has like 18 projects going at one time. (laughs) He always does. Right. But, uh, you know, I guess, you know, probably if I had to just sit and think about it, ultimately, the best scenario for me probably would be the two of them and a, a cast of uh, virtual unknowns, really. Because uh, otherwise, I feel like it draws comparison to to anything they've done in the past. Whereas if they had maybe some guys that got the chops but aren't as well known, okay, you know they have a fresh band and they're just uh, going out playing the songs, but uh, otherwise it seems to me like oh you you screwed this guy or you didn't ask this guy or why do they have this guy uh, you know, and it becomes that you know a term that's thrown around a lot uh, the C squad, um, which I have to actually fault Rich for even coming up with because if you remember quite rightly uh, when Magpie first got together, uh, he's the one that referred to. Um, you know, Chris is uh, as, a crow as the crow flies uh, as the B squad. You know, so it's kind of I don't know. It's a David. Let's be honest. It's a mess right now. It really is, and it's it's a. There's so many variables and how many ways it can go. Let's just uh, 
let's see it play out and and see how it goes. And uh, speaking of Luther, uh, the new North Mississippi All Stars album came out today. What I've heard of it se- sounded pretty good. They've got a female singing on most of the songs with Luther as well. Oh, is that right? Yeah. So, I'm a big uh, I'm a big fan of Luther, and uh, I'm surprised I actually missed that that album was coming out. But uh, yeah, I encourage anybody to check out his solo stuff, his stuff with North Mississippi All Stars. Anything. I mean, he's a he's a true talent. You know, he stepped into a hard gig, and he's really the uh, for me second to Ford in the uh, in the guitar players of the Black Crows over the the last thirty years or so. Well, Steve speaks highly of him in the book. So, um, I take that for what it's worth. Hey, Ian, before we do go any further, we need to help a friend out. Uh, Brian Jones is a, a very loyal supporter of our podcast and all things Black Crows. And he is starting a Facebook group called, I believe it's All Things Blues and Southern Rock. And um, he is wanting to uh, get people to join that Facebook group. And right now it's closed, so you have to get an invite. But he asked that if you just find him on our State of America page, he has liked our page, Brian Jones, ask him to be your friend on Facebook and he'll send you a link. And his ultimate goal is to um, start a podcast. And so I have told him I would help him out with that uh, when it gets to that time frame. So find Brian Jones on Facebook and and, uh, ask him to be your friend and say, hey, I want to be a part of that Facebook group. And uh, I think you'll get a lot out of it. And I really hope he gets his podcast off the ground. Absolutely. He's a great guy. He's always been a big supporter of this show. And, uh, you know, to coincide with the release of this episode, I will be linking something on the Facebook page so you can more easily find him and uh, get yourself involved in that group. Uh, it's shaping up to be something really cool and it'd be cool to get in on the ground floor. So please do that if you have a minute. And, wh- and while we're talking about social media, uh, remind everybody that we have a Twitter account at State of America, an Instagram page, State of America podcast, and we have um, our Facebook page that Ian does a good job of running. So uh, share us with people. Um, as we announced, I think, on our last episode, Steve Gorman has agreed to come on our show. Uh, we're going to try to work something out in the next month. Um, he obviously has Trigger Hippie, a radio show and a book tour going on. But he uh, he had, he sent, sent me an, a personal message and uh, said he would be glad to do it and uh, seemed excited to do it. So Steve will be coming on. And uh, we have a couple of other interviews in the works of people that have said they'll come on the show. We just have to iron out uh, the date and time. But um, Ian and I are really trying hard uh, at getting some good interviews for you and getting some interviews with people that uh, you may not have heard talk about the Black Crows before. And so um, just bear with us. We, we appreciate everybody that listens. Our download numbers are great. I think things are really going to take off with the new Crows announcement that's probably coming soon and then all the stuff with steve gorman and the new trigger hippie album is coming out in a couple of weeks the reissue of live at the greek and of course magpie salute high water 2 so i'm sure we'll be devoting an episode to uh, high water 2 uh soon after it comes out just kind of our initial review but other than that ian i think uh, i think we've cleared the plate for what most people are wanting to hear us talk about Yes, there seems to be a genuine excitement about us doing this. And, and again, I, I greatly appreciate that from everybody who's listened thus far. And the, the big topic at hand uh, is...
Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows, a memoir by Mr. Steve Gorman. And uh, we're going to be discussing that at length here because there's quite a bit of material. Um, I know uh, as a fan, this is like, you know, the ultimate uh, peak behind the scenes. And uh, there's some really interesting stuff in it. And uh, of of course, there's going to be... you know some personal stuff in there, but we're really you know primarily interested in, in a lot of the uh, in-depth looks at uh, the making of albums and behind the scenes on tours. And there's just there's such a wealth of material here. I, I actually I think it's it's quite interesting. Uh, the book uh, in the preface of the book, the book the first sentence in this book is my band, the Black Crows, had a hell of a run, but man, it was weird. And I I, I can't think of any better summation. Of the 30 years that this band's been around than that, uh, I don't know. How's that sound to you? Oh, man. It sounds also like the last two weeks as well. But um, <laughs> and, and we do want to tell everybody, look, there's a lot of really personal stuff in here. And, you know, as Steve says in the book, this is being told from his perspective and his point of view. So uh, some of the stuff that we're going to reference, we're going to reference it from, as you know, Steve's point of view. Um um, some of the really deep personal stuff, we're going to tread kind of lightly on that, honestly, because we're here for the long haul, and being here for the long haul means some of the people that are talked about in this book, we would like to have on the podcast at some point. So uh, we may tiptoe around a few things, but uh, like we said, it, it, you know, we're going to approach the book from Steve's point of view and then you know give our thoughts on things. And Ian, I don't know about you, when I got this, I knocked it out in under two days. Um stayed up at night um and uh you know was reading it whenever i got a chance to and uh, it's probably the fastest i've ever read a book of this length and i've got to say i've i read a lot of rock autobiographies and book and you know in books about rock bands and this one is up there with a uh a book called uh saucer full of secrets about pink floyd that i read as one of the best and you know the crows are almost mythical to a lot of us in that there's they don't do a lot of interviews that really tell you what all was going on you know and a lot of former band members which we have found this out firsthand because we tried to get people on here sign non-disclosure agreements so a lot of the the past members don't really talk about it so there was a lot of folklore around this band and steve does a good job on a especially a very a couple of times really making things make sense to me that I thought didn't make sense beforehand. Yeah. And he really does provide, um, an interesting perspective on some things and, and, um, made me see things from a different perspective or made me understand things differently than how I thought I understood them. And for that reason that you just said, a lot of stuff, is never really disclosed. I mean, you know, fortunately for Steve, he's a, uh, a founding member and he's a partner in the, in the group. So I, I don't think that those, uh, non-disclosure agreements apply to him. But I mean, even, you know, uh, you know, 10, 12 years ago when I, when I first spoke to Mark Ford, he told me about that non-disclosure agreement. And he also mentioned that it's in perpetuity, which, uh, means that that is, with no end to it. it is an indefinite length of time that they're prohibited from really discussing certain things. So this is really, it's like uh, a swing in the door open on some kind of vault, you know, it's, and then, and as a fan, it's really a, a treat. I, but you're correct in saying, 
you know, there's always really three sides to every story, right? Yours, mine, and the truth. So this is just from Steve's perspective, and it's an interesting perspective, but by no means are we saying that this is the the ultimate gospel. And, uh, you know, so some of the personal stuff is really best stayed away from because that eh, that becomes more gossipy, and that's not really what we're about. You know what I mean? Not at all. And I, I was really... Uh, pleased that he got Stephen Hyden to write it with him. Stephen's one of my favorite music bloggers. He has an awesome podcast called Celebration Rock. And really, to me, the two definitive Steve Gorman interviews that we've had before this are uh, Stephen's interview of uh, Gorman on Celebration Rock, and then Dean Delray interviewed him on the Let There Be Talk podcast. And a couple of those stories actually pop up in the book that he told on those. And Steve is one of the funniest and most articulate rock and rollers you're probably ever going to find. I just find him, he could read a soup can to me and I think it would be, it would be interesting. Um, and he, he just, Stephen Hyden does a really good job with his words. I understand that I've read that he may have turned it up to 2000 pages. And if that's the case, Steve, I'd be glad to PayPal you a hefty sum of money to send us a PDF <laughs> file of all that. Uh, and I think a lot of other people uh, would too. Um, so yeah, I, I was so excited to get this. Uh, like I said on one of our other podcasts, I was looking as forward to this as I have been, you know, actual releases from the Crows. Because uh, I, and I felt like we were going to get, you know, a lot of the stories that we wanted to hear. We did. Um, the only negative I have about it, I wish there would have been a little more stuff about like studio sessions and things like that. But I understand the other stuff is what sells, and ultimately that probably got cut out. And also, you know, a lot of that stuff Steve was there just to record. He didn't write. So I don't think he could really comment on the writing of certain songs, just kind of how they came to be. But that, that's the only knock I have on it. It's a very slight knock, and I completely understand why that stuff's not in here. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you had said before, he is a, a fantastic storyteller. And he actually, for me, falls somewhere between uh chris's like very grandiose style of speaking and storytelling and rich's very matter of fact style of of accounting things and interviews and stuff he's kind of somewhere in the middle you know he doesn't go too flashy with it but he does uh he does give you all the appropriate details now i don't know if this is true for you but for me uh, and i i was absolutely looking forward to this like you said, as much as uh, you know, a record coming out or uh, or anything like that, it it it, it bared that same weight for me. Um, going through the the early stuff, you know, the uh, the pre Shake Your Money Maker stuff where they were meeting and getting together and stuff like that, um, while it was very insightful, moved a little bit slower for me than when they got into doing Shake Your Money Maker and then going from there. I don't know if that was the same for you. Um, I can see that. I was interested in though because I wanted to see how the band got their sound. Because from all accounts, even in the book, they did not sound like Shake Your Money Maker a year before or so before they recorded the album. They sounded completely different. Yeah, I mean, what I got from this this book really was that Shake Your Money Maker really came to be within like a six to eight week period before they recorded it. And they spent a lot of time with uh, George Draculius just um, refining their sound. He really, he really, and he's presented that way in the book. He's, he really was instrumental in them finding 
their unique voice and he saw something in them you know a couple of years before they actually did the record he saw something in them that said if i could just harness this energy and this talent and this sound it'll really be something and he he that's a lot to be said for him. He really put in a lot of work because, by all accounts, even early on, Chris was Chris. So, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he's, I think when he went to see them, Steve said it's their worst gig they ever played. Um, and they played, like, the Stooges and then, like, Aerosmith. And he's like, who does this? And it's like, that's what we do. And, um, I mean, really, there's three people that come out of this book looking really, really good. Uh, Johnny Colt comes out looking the best Pete yes Pete Angelos comes out looking good and George Draculius um it, it's really interesting to see what all Pete had to put up with and all the crazy roads he had to navigate to, to hold this thing together yeah it's uh it's it was uh they were definitely uh you know it's like lightning in a bottle you know like they it really had to do a lot of work to, to get things to happen. And uh, my hat's off to Pete Angelus. He really, uh, he had his hands full there for a while. and uh, But stuck by them and always seemed to try to do right by by the band and by the Robinson brothers and, and Steve. And, um, it, it's, it's funny because it doesn't seem like Steve really ever has a bad word to say about, about Pete, which is, which is a nice thing. When Pete has been the, the target of so much talk and, and kind of negative vibes for that since i can remember online in the on, you know the crows online community yeah i mean he gets a lot and uh his uh his uh partner in crime later on amy finkel she usually used to take a beating online for and i never really understood that um but uh they he really was one of the architects of the uh of the band's early days i mean it, it, it's funny because in the past, we've talked about it, and you have a particular affinity for the High as the Moon tour uh, when they would open with No Speak, No Slave, and they had the the curtain full of, you know, essentially Christmas lights, you know, that they'd be playing the intro behind, and that curtain would drop out, and they would start. Pete was the one who came up with that whole stage design, which I thought was interesting. You know, that was his brainchild, and that was brilliant. That's, that's one of the best openings to a, a show I've ever seen. Uh, across any band or you know artist yeah and then and then at certain times he had to kind of go behind chris's back and and redo this the stage design because yeah. uh, you know what they had didn't look good but yeah that, that those early years were interesting and one of the things that that kind of stuck out to me at the first was steve never really played the drums till he was like 21 yeah and i mean look you know, obviously he had a natural talent for it. I mean, the guy's the guy's a brilliant drummer. He's one of my favorite uh, rock drummers of all time. Um, and uh, you know, I I have no problem saying that to anybody. You know, because uh, you know the typical answer is you know you, you got your John Bomb or, or this and that. And those guys are brilliant. But Steve is up there. I mean, he's he's fantastic on the drums. He has a certain feel. That you can just listen and know that it's him, and there to and to my ears, there are very few drummers that can do that. And so, if I'm noticing somebody playing the drums, they're either really, really good or really, really bad. Um, and uh, I've always enjoyed watching. You know, he's so animated. You know, he was always mouthing stuff while he played, and 
I don't know. To me, Steve has just always, in my eyes, kind of been the coolest member of the band. Um, he he is, for, without a doubt. He's like the unsung hero of that band. And to me, a lot of times seemed like the glue that kept the band together in a lot of ways, you know? Well, and I think they found that out when uh, Bill did those 10 or so shows. And I thought it was interesting, the book, he never said Bill's name. by na- He never said his said it by name. And I wonder if that was like almost out of a courtesy to him. Yeah. I always felt, um, particularly badly for, uh, Bill DeBrow because, uh, I liked him. I thought he was a, a, a good drummer and I, he did Rich's early solo material and, uh, the hookah Brown stuff he did. He did a lot of justice too, but he just was in over his head in the black crows. He could not, fill Steve's shoes and that's a testament to how great Steve is as a drummer you know what I mean yeah and I think it's interesting how you know what all they went through to get Steve to come back in the band now to be honest Ian has not finished the book right I was uh, I was keeping that under my hat but no uh I, this book happened to be released at a time where um uh it, you know uh, other things in uh, my daily life are like uh, pandemonium so I'm sneaking in everywhere i can with this and uh you know i've fallen asleep with this thing on my chest uh, many nights you know uh be giving it a valiant effort but we figured we'd uh we'd dive into the the first part of this yeah so uh, what so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work our way through um probably up until the end of we'll see how long it goes up until the end of the three snakes tour and then um we will pick up from there on a later episode but I'm going to turn it over to Ian. He's going to kind of lead us through the book a little bit. He uh, posted a picture online. He has numerous tabs uh, in the book. And so uh, we're kind of going to go through some of the stuff that he highlighted and just kind of discuss it. So, uh, Ian, the floor is yours. Well, like I said, I, I you know, the early uh, early portion of the book, I was very interested in, you know, the, uh, the beginnings of the band. But I didn't start really marking off uh, pages until I got to um, – a passage that I found very, very interesting, um, where uh, Steve remarks that uh, in the 1980s, uh, Chris hated the Grateful Dead, which was a shocking statement to me because um, obviously CRB takes a takes a huge, huge uh, borrowing from the uh, the mindset at least of the Grateful Dead and their uh, approach to touring and songwriting and things like that. So I don't know. Was that surprising to you, or it was? Now I have heard that before on um, one of his interviews, but um, I, I thought that was interesting, and I thought he commented on how Chris used to dress and how you know he would never be caught dead, you know, dressing like a like, like the the Grateful Dead people, and um, you know, because we've always heard that they didn't really listen to classic rock growing up that they were more into things like the Stooges and REM and some of the punk stuff. And so, cause I believe a lot of the Zeppelin stuff, you know, they had to really go, Chris at least had to really go back and familiarize himself with it. So that doesn't shock me that he did it like the dead. What shocked me is what Gorman's reasoning is that he became such a deadhead. Um, I, I, have you gotten to that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, uh, I I saw it as um, because they because the, the 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 dead treated him with the respect that he thought he deserved. So he kind of, um, which I think I believe he said uh, he went to the first his first dead show in ninety one. 
And there's not there's I mean there's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot of bands that I used to I never would have been caught dead listening to that I listen to all the time. Now, the Gaslight Anthem uh, from uh, New Jersey is is one of those bands. I used to kind of laugh at them, and now I own everything they've done. I've I've met Brian Fallon. They're one of my favorite bands. So uh, we're not saying you can't change, you know, your musical taste. And obviously, all of our tastes change as we get older. You know, when I was 13 years old. You know, I, I couldn't see past Poison and Bon Jovi and Guns N' Roses, you know, <laughs> like most people from that time frame. But obviously, you know, as you get older, you get into, you know, a little more mature stuff and different things. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that it, it seemed to be such an abrupt turn. Um, and the reasoning for the turn seemed to be surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is it is a very, very strange thing to me that... Um, but you know, I can't. I can't say I uh, like you mentioned. I haven't been guilty myself of, uh, you know, all of a sudden like taking on a style or or something that uh, that you see in the people you admire the most. And uh, you know, I always, I always kind of came to understand that his his uh, appreciation of the dead came from a true admiration of uh, their work and what they did. So you know, but it's just it's just so odd to me to read that like he used to sit outside the pizza place Steve worked at and like, you know, uh, make fun of deadheads and, uh, and stuff like that. And then, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a complete, uh, you know, uh, full turn there, you know? Well, and not only was it a full turn, but I think he probably was also looking for to maybe start some type of sense of community like the dead had, you know, and the crows had that for a while. Uh, although we're, we're a whole lot more cynical by nature than, most deadheads but i I often wondered after reading that was that something that um that he um you know wanted to do is kind of cultivate a falling like that because they definitely did that for a while absolutely and you know and uh as steve even admits to in the book uh you know it's a it was a uh it was a a period period of time that's often regarded as their best period and, and you can't take that away from them they were in top form performance wise at that time um and another thing from the early uh days mentioned in the book that i found uh surprising was uh everybody knows that the you know the famous uh, story of how they were bucking corporate sponsorship and got themselves booted off the opening slot from the ZZ Top Tour in 91. But the thing that becomes surprising to me is they, Steve recounts a story of how very soon after that, they were offered like some million dollar sum from Bud Light to sponsor a tour for them. And, and Chris was kind of like, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, <laughs> like it just seems in such contrast to the, to the, to the statement he was making that, that really if you think about it, it was they got booted off that tour in Atlanta, and and, they, and that was planned to do right, it in Atlanta because David Frick was going to be there, and they were doing the article for Rolling Stone that got so much heat it put them on the cover, and that's really their first big blast of uh, publicity. So it's funny that he, you know, it, in light of all that, he's like, "Yeah, we'll take we'll take money from Bud Light, sure, whatever," you know. <laughs> What, what, Which I don't it, think they ultimately ended up doing. Was but. it Steve in the book? He was like, "There's no way we can do this. Like, we'll lose all credibility." Yeah, yeah. That that's but one. Of, a, that, that's one of the things that that kind of I don't know. Kind of removes some of the lore of it for me. Is 
some of this stuff that we all thought was for one reason wasn't for that reason and was really more for was more capitalistic than we thought. I think it I think it actually the way I always I was reading these things in the book when he would um you know say the uh things that might you know be perceived as hypocritical or something like that. I really think you're right it does remove some of that lore but in a way that ultimately makes Chris Robinson and other people seem more human, you know, they're just people trying to figure their way through this. And, and, you know, they did, they did the things that they thought were the right things to do at the time. And they're just, they're just people. They're people like, like any one of us, you know, they, they make mistakes. They, they make poor decisions. They, they think one thing and then they say another thing and then they flip flop and, it's very, it's a very human aspect of them, which which does take away that kind of rock star persona. You know what I mean? That's true. The um, the, the next thing, and I, because I, 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 I just laughed because I just read it as I was going over my notes again, and it made me, I laughed out loud <laughs> reading this, and it's just, it's such a, an interesting description of uh, talking about tall. You know, when they were cutting the tall album. And they go through everything and all the back and forth and the, uh, you know, the, the the craziness that was going on during that time. When they were sent the final mix, you know, to listen to it, Steve got his and he says, uh, the tracks for Tall sounded muted. They had no life, no energy. It just sat there on the tape like a dry fart. I thought that was uh, the best description I could ever read of that, you know. <laughs> I think, I, I think I, to me, the funniest quote in the whole book was when they decided they were going to name the album Amorca and they're like what does it mean it's like yeah it's a place full of judgment Eddie Harsh goes brother you ought to visit it one t- sometime <laughs> and that's you know as a, as a sidetrack real quick it's Eddie Harsh comes out with a lot of cool stuff in the book and, and the book only serves for him to make me see how truly unique he was and um, how much uh how much of a loss it was when he passed away, you know? Because there's a, there's another story in 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 the in there, um, I believe around the Amorica or a bus tour, when they opened for the Stones in Europe a couple of times, and uh, you know uh, um, Eddie's you know breaking Keith Richards' balls, you know, like it's it's so, it's so funny. Yeah, I like how he was like Keith Richards wanted some coke and. Eddie Harsh chews him out like you know what are you doing asking to open a band from coke and then he goes and then Eddie gave him some coke. <laughs> you know i just think that's great you know eddie was unique enough a guy where he's like eh, yeah i'll give uh keith richards a ripping you know he didn't you know he didn't stand on ceremony with those guys which was kind of cool but uh i mean I, what was your perception of just the whole summation of uh how those tall sessions were and how because uh, it, it to me it, it came off as even more self-indulgent and, and and crazy than than i had ever imagined before and i had some pretty i mean it's a basically uh uh by any account six hundred thousand to million dollar album they just tossed aside until you know 10 20 years later it sounded like it would have been a nightmare you know rich comes in and erases everything chris comes in and erases what rich did and then it sounds also to me like they were kind of searching for a sound or at least chris was searching for a sound and they did not achieve it because while I appreciate a lot of the musicianship on Tall, I agree on most of those songs. I prefer the versions that wound up on Amorca 
more than I do the versions that are for those that tracks that wound up on Amorica. I prefer the Amorica versions. Yeah, um, I do too. And I always saw Tall as serving as the kind of uh, blueprint for what would become Amorica. So ultimately, it was necessary for them to do that because Amorica, even though you know, as Steve recounts in the book, perhaps wasn't as commercially uh, successful artistically. It was. It's gigantic. It's a monster, that album. And you can't ever deny its power and its influence, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but during the Tall recording sessions, I, you know, he mentions how, how much you know, Rich was just looking to, to, to keep with the rock aspect of it, uh, where Chris wanted to get away from that. He, he, he wanted to go in a different direction and... Um, Steve mentions, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, how Chris introduced a uh, a French horn onto uh, descending at the end, and uh, it was a funny thing because when I would listen to it on Toll, I always thought that was kind of a cool element. So, <laughs> but he was you know dead set against that, and uh, um, he even said that he was driving around with Rich uh, in Rich's uh, his BMW 850, and they are listening to uh, Nirvana's In Utero which was surprising to me. I didn't think that would be up there alley. And, you know, Rich is saying, you know, this is what I want. You know, why can't we go back to, to, to the rock aspect of what we were? And uh, I think he was really despondent that they were breaking away from that. I agree. And that was one of the things that shocked me the most about the book. I always thought that the band was completely on board with the with the direction they were heading on, especially on like Three Snakes. And Steve talks in there about how he thinks the Amorica tour was their playing was at its peak and that's what he enjoyed the most. Whereas people like you and I probably point to that three snakes period as being, you know, the best shows. And, uh, I get the sense that Steve was really not a fan of the jams, which I got to think for a drummer, that's got to be nerve wracking those jams. Cause he's literally holding everything together. Um, and yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting of how rich, seems like he wanted to be more of a conventional rock band and Steve seemed to be on board with that as well. And then of course, you know, the, the biggest rock star of them all is Johnny Colt. Dress, well, he dressed his attitude, you know, he came from, it sounds like he came from like a borderline glam band, uh, you know, there in Atlanta. And uh, it's just interesting that Chris seemed to kind of win out on that. Yeah. I, it, uh, he kind of really tried to distance himself from that for whatever reason. Um, but then by contrast to that, there was a mention in there that, uh, um, Chris hated Pearl Jam, like more than anything. And I, I thought that was, uh, uh, you know, an interesting, uh, notation that he made about that because to me it would seem if Chris being in that mindset that he wanted to get away from the straightforward rock stuff, you'd think he would gravitate more to Pearl Jam because those guys, every record they did, they're like, ah, the hell with what we did the last time the hell with what everybody's expecting we're going to do this you know it seemed to be more in line with chris's thinking you know and, and uh, not only that they legitimately put their money where their mouth was with the corporate sponsorship stuff with the, what they did with ticket they didn't tour for years because they didn't want to use ticketmaster i mean they cost themselves millions of probably tens of millions of dollars yeah and it, tens of millions of fans i'm sure too because in that i remember in that period uh, you know, wanting to see Pearl Jam on the Vitology album, and they weren't really touring because they couldn't get venues that weren't 
handled by Ticketmaster, and it was a an admirable stance. But ultimately, I think it cost them a lot. And uh, like you said, it really would seem to me that that would be in Chris's mindset. But apparently, in uh, um, P twenty five London, there's a there's a, a line that is a reference to Eddie Vedder, um, the empty bottle bottle saviors that they crawl, because um, apparently, uh, I guess it had it had come to their attention that because Eddie Vedder was like press shy and didn't want to deal with it, he would pretend to be drunk so nobody would be bothering him, you know. So that was a reference to him, which I thought was was very curious, but. Um, uh, was there anything else from the the tall kind of period that that drew your attention? Maybe something I glossed over and didn't uh, pick up on. No, I think you pretty much hit on it. It's just that it was a colossal cluster going out to California to record all this stuff, and then they get back home and they listen to the mixes, and they're you know they're not good, and that's when they decided to go with uh, Jack Joseph Puig, if I remember correctly. That's right. And they and, reco- uh, and they recorded they wound up recording the bulk of it back in Atlanta, right? They started out in uh, in L.A. and uh, with the with the attitude that they were going to be more rock and be more aggressive, and you can hear that on Amorica. You can hear that that grittier edge. Um, but you know, a, a funny thing they mention about uh, Jack Joseph Puig is that um, he became obsessed with minor elements of. Um, of the recording process, you much know, like uh, Mutt Lang, yeah, where it's like the the kick the kick drum on the on the drum kit has to sound perfect, or you know this microphone has to be exactly right to pick this up, and uh, it's a funny thing. I remember Mark Ford telling me that when I interviewed him for Hitting the Note magazine, that 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 part of the process of recording Amorica kind of put him off a bit because he felt it took away from the spontaneity of it a little bit, you know, and the that you know immediacy of just playing something and that's it that's what goes on the record you know but um obviously you can't fault fault jack because uh he produced a hell of a studio record well i think i think a more this is the way i look at those classic albums i think southern harmony is the best album top to bottom i think amorica has the best sound to it and i think three snakes is the best artistic statement they've ever done uh amorica just sounds good a lot of little ear candy you had the extra percussionist there um so he did a really good job i think of probably getting the sound honestly that chris was wanting to go for more than draculius would have gone for because those two albums that draculius did it was more straightforward and i think kind of more probably the way rich and steve wanted it to go when i think of amorica too like visually in my head if i think about the studio process for that, I think about that short film they did where they brought in like, uh, you know, uh, scantily clad women and, uh, you know, and uh, little people and everybody's dressed in costumes and took mushrooms and they filmed it. And they kind of projected that as like, this is what it was like to be in the studio for Amorica when really it was like a very structured thing and, and very uh, laborious and, and tedious for them, you know? So it's, it's funny how they, they had a uh, a real hand in in creating their own image like that. And I, I I don't know. Do you do you does that come to your mind when you think of Amorica? That video and that that whole situation. Yeah, and you know I've always heard them say that full video is never going to be released. But 
he did a good job of saying, hey, it really wasn't like that. It was like that on that night, it sounds like. But he also talks about how Rich doesn't never seem to partake in any of that kind of stuff, which I thought was interesting. It's such a, you know, from square one, when you're reading this, it's it's so many things that it's like, oh, why did they do that? You know, they shot themselves in the foot. And I didn't realize how many times they had uh, they had really shot themselves in the foot and and the cover of Amorica being one of those things i thought they were all together on that and that was like a a thing but that really was a chris thing to take that hustler photo and put that on the cover and that really that really hurt them in a lot of ways which i didn't realize until reading it in the book here you know right it's almost like he wanted to do things a certain way but then he still wanted the money to come in and he couldn't put together that, you know, that cover in 1994 was not going to help them. No, because it really kept them out of a lot of uh, large retailers, which, uh, you know, Chris Chris was very flippant about. But uh, like I had mentioned uh, in the past, I think, you know, in the middle in middle America, a lot of kids get their music from Walmart and, you know, at the time, you know, whatever other Kmart and big box stores like that. That's the only access they have to music. You know, that's not like, uh, you know, the streets in Manhattan where there's a, uh, you know, a record shop every uh, stone's throw. You know, so I think it really hurt them a lot in those areas of the country where that was the only means of access to the music. And they, uh, Chris annoyed so many executives at some of these places that they wouldn't even bother carrying the record which is a shame well it was it was it on a when he got mad that um a guy from best buy came in while they were recording it and he threw him out yeah and the guy they they relay that story as the guy was like starstruck almost coming in like oh geez i'm in here with the black crows this is fantastic and uh you know he kind of wasn't very welcoming to him and kind of i really think uh hurt them because the store ultimately really didn't carry the record. Um, but it's funny, you know, with regards to that album cover, uh, you know, Steve writes that we voted, you know, who wants this as the album cover? Chris voted yes. Rich, Johnny, Pete, and Steve voted no. And nothing speaks to the dysfunction of the band that Chris got his way, you know? So <laughs> it's a funny thing. I, I always thought that they were all on board with that that cover, but apparently not. No, and it really, like you said, it really hurt them. You know, and today, if that album cover comes out, it doesn't move the needle. But 1994, that was a big deal. So then they had to go and rework it and basically remove the human body and just make it all black with just the bikini there, and uh, which is the copy that I had for the longest time. And now I've got the reissue on vinyl, and I have the original the original album cover. But it just seems like there are all these steps that were the missteps where... They could have done something that was conventional and it would have paid off big time. And they just, for whatever reason, whenever there was a fork in the road, they took the wrong turn. Yeah. And, you know, and, and in a lot of ways, I really have to admire their spirit. I think a lot of times they took the path less traveled um, because they wanted to to do to do their own thing. But I just think a lot of times it was misguided. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it also seemed to me like the Amorica, the subsequent tour for it, uh, Amorica or Bust, is when you know things started to go uh, off the track a little bit. That's when the excesses started much more heavily. I think there was a story in here, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think I marked it off that um, that you know um, 
during a show in Minneapolis, um, Mark's guitar tech had laid out, uh, you know, a nice rail of coke, and Mark went around the back of his amp, did it, and did it in the view of you know the uh, the audience, you know, and that's that's crazy if you think about it, you know, that's very very careless, you know, in terms of uh, feeling that you're untouchable as a rock band, you know, right, and and risky, <laughs> <laughs> risky. Risky to say the least. Risky. Hey, can we can we go back a little bit to the the first album real quick? Absolutely. Because um, uh, that was one of the more fascinating revelations in the book is is the sound that they wound up with and how George Draculius really molded their, them. You know, I think they kept wanting to record, and he's like, "You're not ready. You're not ready." And I think he even gave them some like classic rock albums to like listen to the Stones and stuff and. Uh, and Rich apparently really gravitated toward that. And so when they go in to make that, of course, with Jeff Cease, um, they, um, you know, they record the album and it just blows up. And it almost seems like hard to handle was an afterthought of recording it. And that they didn't want to record it, but they really liked Otis Redding. So they recorded it. And of course, it made them a lot of money. Um, and then, of course, you have the stuff with Jeff Cease. Jeff comes out looking like a really good guy in this. You know, Steve talks about how awesome of a guy he was and how he basically didn't get fired. He called and said, guys, I know this isn't working out and I'm just going to bow out. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I never realized how much of a mutual situation that was between them. I thought they kind of, uh, you know, uh, excised him. Uh, but he, I didn't realize that he had a major hand in it. And, uh, yeah, he really does come up you know smelling like roses on that because uh i just think they had uh you know after that shake your money maker tour they had kind of surpassed him ability wise and uh that's not to say that he didn't you know after some time become a a very fine player himself because i know he's gotten some very prolific gigs since then you know so Uh, he's not hurting at all and i mean steve talked about even running into running into him years later and he was just like he's just a good guy uh, but I did go back and watch that video of that performance where they said when they got to the hotel they realized Jeff had to go. Have you have you watched that? I did it as I was reading the book. I pulled it up. They said it was the MTV New Year's Eve performance and that he really uh, botched the solo on uh, Hard to Handle. And I listened to it, and by no means is it what it should have been, but the book does kind of paint it as a little worse but you know i i understand why they would say it was bad some people i i saw you know on social media saying oh, i don't understand uh you know why this comes off so bad uh, it was not good but well i think at that point they were starting to realize how good they were or how good they could be and they were maturing and obviously there was going to be a logical next step on that next on southern harmony and they really needed people that could that could fill those shoes and you know, of course, they they wound up getting forward, you know, because Burning Tree had opened up for them. And I think I get the idea that Burning Tree really wasn't going anywhere and Ford was kind of looking for a landing spot. Yeah, I mean, and he really the catalyst for that, too, was that he had sat in, sat in with them a bunch of times on like uh, Allman Brothers Dreams and stuff like that. And I think that's really what cemented his, uh, hey, we need a guy like this in the band, you know. I, something that's kind of glossed over in it too is that, um, you know, I think I think Mark was working in a record store 
you know, in between Bernie Tree and uh, um, the Black Crows. Like, I didn't realize that he had a downswing in between those two gigs. I thought he kind of went from one to the other. You Me know? too. Yeah, which is interesting. And I know? love the story in there about when they go to England for the first time, and it's Mark's first time, and he's so drunk on the yeah. flight, and he's just like, man, we're in London, and it's just... It was kind of neat to see because Steve and them had already experienced that for a couple of years. Him get to, you know, see what it was like for Mark, you know, to have all his rock and roll dreams come true. It, it was kind of interesting because in my head, Mark Ford's just like the coolest guy ever, right? Oh, yeah. But, yeah, then, definitely but then you realize behind the scenes, he was just fanboying like you and I would be if we all of a sudden were in a multi-platinum selling band and we were in London, England for the first time where all his heroes are from. Yeah. Let me tell you, man, though, uh, even Mark Ford fanboying is still going to be a lot cooler than we would come off, you know? <laughs> oh, for sure. For sure. But so, yeah, so they, they get Ford in, and then we move into the uh, the Southern Harmony time, and uh, he pretty much confirmed the rumors were all true. They knocked that album out quick. Yeah. I mean, um, I know that, um, and not to say that it's not the same for me, but I know Southern Harmony is your top album for them. So um, what did you take from the book and, and uh, regarding that period of time for the recording and the touring and stuff? Did it, did it open your eyes a little bit more to the, to the ins and outs of the album and that kind of thing? Just kind of how they became a, fine, a fine-tuned machine on that Moneymaker tour. And you know they had road-tested some of those songs and played a lot of those songs in soundcheck and how – it seems seamless that Ford came in and just nailed all those solos and um, just really um, fit right in. And then Steve even talks about how Ford's playing just took the band to a whole other level. And, you know, when they get done with that album, they realize like we have just, we have just made, you know, the album and we're ready to, you know, get it out to the world and let everybody hear us play and introduce everybody to Mark Ford. And also how, their sound changed so much between Moneymaker and Southern Harmony. There's so many more layers to things like, uh, you know, Thorn in My Pride and uh, songs like that wouldn't have fit in on Shake Your Moneymaker that went on to become, you know, staples of the live act and just how, how confident they were when they were recording that album and how even more confident they were when they walked out of the studio. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's uh, there was a bit more. See now, like the, the original impression I got was they knocked that out eight days, and it was like turned into the record company. Here you go. But there was like, a little period after that where they they did some overdubs and things like that, and which is to be expected. It doesn't take anything away from the the uh, the mythology of the record for me, but uh, it was cool to read about that. You know, but uh, and this is something you had touched upon. Um, you know, before we read the book or anything like that was that they had done that uh session in uh new orleans at daniel uh lanois studio uh where they cut like exit and uh you know the fear years fear and, uh, bewildered yeah and that steve thought that that should have come out as like uh an ep um to like tide people over in between albums and uh I've, I couldn't agree with Steve Moore on that one, to be honest with you. That would have been fantastic. The biggest glaring error in the entire career of the Black Crows is that Exit 
was never officially released on anything. And I will go on record as saying that. <laughs> yeah. they, they were sitting on, for them, a top five song in their catalog, and it never saw the light of day. And if I remember correctly, it's kind of Chris thought it was all a little too heavy and too conventional sounding. Wasn't that right? Yeah. I mean, it really seemed that they didn't release that material to serve Chris's desire to 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 break away from the rock thing which that was i i'm you know it was an it was ultimately a mistake that material should have come out and that would have that those would have been classics in their catalog as far as i'm concerned it would and he seems to just really talk about how those sessions down there in new orleans just how good the band was playing and how tight they were and it's just a shame we don't have an official document of that time because I'll be honest with you, a lot of the stuff Steve has said about some of the songs that they released and didn't release, I seem to side with him on most of them. Yeah, I mean, I agree with uh, with some of the stuff that he had to say song-wise. <coughs> and, also, and also going back to that time, and, and then we'll I'll let you take over and, and we'll move on, but I thought it was interesting he pointed out Chris's demeanor on stage during the highs of the moon tour changed halfway through um, that he became more stationary because those, I mean, to me, those concert videos, I know I've beaten a dead horse on this, but those videos of that highs of the moon tour, he's just, he's like a madman on stage. He's all over the place and how once the dead thing came into his head, it seems like he just really got more reserved with his stage presence, which and I've, t- I've said this on here. I've told other people this. There are times when Chris Robinson, the only person I think could ever beat him being a front man was like Mick Jagger on like that 72 tour. I mean, he to me, he leaves Steven Tyler in the dust when he wants to. You know, it's, it's, it's all yeah. about when he wants to. And obviously Steven Tyler is more consistent than Chris, especially with like that, those, those early highs, the moon shows. I mean, he is all over the place and is into it. And, I personally would like to see him go back to that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he really created this uh, persona, for lack of a better term, and had built it up through the High as the Moon tour, and then all of a sudden was very content with knocking it down. And it, it really was to his detriment, I think, because he was not demonstrating a lot of his strengths by doing that. Exactly. And it really kind of to some extent, alienating those people that wanted to see that. You know, uh, Steve says, we alienated we alienated 85% of our off, uh, audience on our next two records after Moneymaker. They did. I mean, and if you look at it sales-wise, I mean, it was, you know, however many million for Shake Your Moneymaker. And then I think Southern Harmony capped it around about two million or so at the time. And then, you know, Amorica only goes gold. Right. So he's, he's, you know, he, that, that's a fair assessment, I think. And, and as I was reading that, I was always thinking about, I'm a very big fan of um, the, the film Spinal Tap. So um, in that, there's a, they add the manager of Spinal Tap, you know, uh, oh, they've gone from playing arenas to, you know, to theaters to, you know, very small venues. And he said, do you, do you feel that the appeal of the band has, uh, is waning? And he said, no, uh, no, I just think their appeal is becoming more selective. You know, and that's a nice way of saying that they're not maintaining their audience, you know. And well, I think that was the case with them. Well, and, and Steve even says in the book, there was a way they could have 
they could have made both fan both both types of fans happy. The people that liked Moneymaker and the people that liked Three Snakes. He was like, there's a way we could have done that. But we just turned our back on one whole big part of our fan base. Yeah, and ultimately I think they ended up doing that years later. Because if you notice, I, at least I particularly noticed, and it was unfortunately when, when Mark was out of the fold but they actually you know they did it on the 0506 tour a bit too they really did bridge that gap where they would play stuff from every album and really mix it up and and that was that's the way they could have done that is okay we're gonna play some of our this material and some of our newer material and mix it together and and get interesting with it but i think chris was so dead set on going down this dead like road um that it ultimately it, it hurt what people were looking for from them from the start, and that's you know, if you notice, uh, you know, you've been around been around with this band a while, you'll notice a lot of people, you know, aren't weren't particularly there for the early days. They came on board later, you know. So it's like I think a lot of those early fans just moved on, you know, and it's a shame. Well, before we move on past Amorca, there is one thing I wanted to get your opinion on. It seemed to be a lot of tension in the band at various times over the set list, particularly all the covers that they played. And I know there's one instance where I think Chris got mad and let Rich make the set list. And Steve says, you know, he put together this rocking set list and the crowd just loved it. And Chris came off stage and said that was terrible. Um, right. So, and then went to mirror the set list like the next night, the same structure that Rich had set right. up. Right. So, was I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Because... We've both talked on here that the Crows have turned us onto a lot of music we otherwise might not have listened to with those covers. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like they were doing You Shook Me All Night Long or, um, you know, um, You Really Got Me. You know, these really like kind of iconic songs that everybody covers. They were picking popular bands, but not necessarily. I mean, for the Stones, they did Torn and Frayed, which I think at that point, the Stones had never even played that song live before. Um you know, so, I mean, they were, and, you know, Neil Young, they picked big time. They didn't pick, you know, like a hurricane. So it wasn't like they were going for, like, the really well-known stuff, but it seemed to be just kind of this constant source of, of tension. Yeah, I mean, I I ultimately see both sides of that. I understand why Chris would want to do that, because he, maybe he saw it as the opportunity that it was to turn on people to music that he was interested in that they might not necessarily be as familiar with that being said i understand rich's point of view as well where these people are coming out to see us they predominantly want to hear our songs which is correct you know it really is a fine line i would think uh to balance out how many covers you put into a set list you know you got to keep it yeah you sprinkle in one or two but you got to stick to your own material as well so if you're coming out on stage and you're doing you know, a set that's filled with, uh, you know, three 10 to 12 minute jams and, you know, three or four covers, how much original material is getting out there. And I get that too. But I didn't know that the, the, the famed brawl that they had before the, um, Beacon Theater show in 95 was over a set list. It was over covers in the set list, as ludicrous as that is. Yeah, you would have thought it would have been something else, but I'm sure that was just one of those things. It was a straw that broke the camel's back. You know, things had been brewing um, up until that point. 
Um, let's talk for just a second before I turn it back over to you. Kind of how Steve seemed to always be the glue that held the, the band together a lot of times. And it seemed like a lot of times Pete went to Steve to get things done. Yeah, or used Steve. I don't want to say used because used has a negative connotation. Right. But, uh, you know, brought Steve in to um, kind of get his way with the uh, with the two brothers. Because throughout the book, at least, you know, you can see that Steve had a lot of leverage with them, you know. How many times did you read in this book, you know, Steve's like, oh, I'm just going to quit, you know. And they wouldn't allow that to happen, you know. Right. Yeah. And it, yeah, several times, like, Rich would go, you didn't really mean that, did you? Like, when they were in private, or Chris would be like, you know, don't do it. And, it, you know, but he, like he said, Pete gave him that book on codependency to read. Yeah. And... You know, in a way, that was the th- that was the thing. But Steve seemed to always be have a lot more confidence in himself that he could would be all right without them. Um, you know, and he, he talks about you know maybe how they managed money versus how he managed money, and you know he I think at times thought you know I'll be all right if I step away from it, and then you know he well, I don't no, I'm not gonna spoil it for you because I don't know how far you've gotten in the book, but anyway that there there's an interesting story about what was going on around the time that they signed up for the page tour, but we'll talk about that on our next one. But yeah, I was just really impressed with how he and Pete seemed to have to kind of work together and also how the camaraderie that he had with Johnny Colt. Um, and, 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 but also it seemed like Ed was never around for any of this. Did you notice that? Yeah. Like, it almost seems like, like it's kind almost, of wandering around in the background or something. You it know? almost seems like Ed just showed up at, at the shows and played. Because there's little talk about him as far as like his feelings and um, you know uh, what he thought was going on. Now Steve may have done that on purpose because Ed, unfortunately, is not here to defend himself or to to you know confirm or deny that. You know, and obviously Johnny Colt's still alive. And man, and like Johnny Colt comes out of this thing is like, hey, this dude's got it all together. And I just used to always think he was just kind of this like eclectic drifter but apparently he's been a very successful business person and you know he was into like yoga and uh steve just really seems to talk with a lot of reverence when it comes to cult yeah i mean he really does come off as like a classy guy in this whole thing and i I never had much understanding of his role in the band and all this kind of stuff over the years um but also during this during that time period, like the ninety four ninety five time period, is when you first start to see that um, you know, Chris and Rich try to renegotiate the terms a little bit. Um, that they wanted uh, uh, more of the uh, more of the money involved with it because they were the songwriters and they were the identifiable members of the band more so than others, I guess, and. Um, you know, without getting into it, because it does get a bit uh, personal. You know, that's that's when Steve starts to take issue with them uh, quite a bit, and uh, it's. I always find it very sad when things come down to uh, financial disputes. You know. Yeah, and Johnny, the- all, Johnny always seemed to be willing to just go along with whatever they say, and I almost think like Johnny knew he wasn't in this for the long haul, and he was just he was he liked he liked being. I think he enjoyed being in the band, and so I feel like he just kind of went along with. 
financially with whatever they offered because he never probably expected to be that successful. But Steve was right. I mean, you know, I'm here from the beginning and, you know, whether you like it or not, my drumming is plays a big role in this band. And, and I completely agree with Steve as far as like he, he didn't deserve to be slighted any money other than the publishing, which obviously that's, you know, um, Chris and, and, and Rich. And then have you gotten to the part in the book where he goes to him and asks him for a piece of that publishing? Yeah, it was like 1% he wanted or one point or something. And it was like just kind of like, hey, this would just, you know, this is all I want, which I don't think, considering what all he put up with and how he was a loyal soldier, how that was unreasonable. But yeah, it's really sad when you hear these things come down to money because in our head, we think all of them are super rich. Now, I mean, all of them obviously have probably made a lot more money than you and I'll ever make. But one of the things I've learned from doing my other podcast and interviewing a lot of musicians from a lot of different walks of life is it's hard. And, it, you know, there's a lot of people that have their hand in that pot. You have publicists, you have agents, you have lawyers, you have booking agents, you have the record company. You know, and by the time it gets down to you, a lot of times it's not, it's not a lot. And, you know, Steve, Steve, to me, deserved to have his fair share of all of that, for, especially since he'd been there pretty much since the the beginning at least of when the band became what they became to be known as the band. And, um, and I don't blame him for taking issue with that. I don't either, because I didn't realize too, that, um, you know, after, um, you know, Jeff left the band and everything, the, the, the ongoing partnership from then was four of them. I always thought it was, Steve, Rich, and Chris. That's just in my mind. That's how it was. But Johnny was the fourth yeah. partner, you know, and and he was he had an equal stake and an equal right to it just as much as they did. They all started from the same starting point, you know what I mean? And they all really worked to get there, you know, regardless of anyone's individual perception of themselves. Right. So, and I don't think it was. I mean, the way the way he seems to present it was. I know I didn't write the songs, but I was I was there at their concep- uh, conception, and you know I feel I had a, a little piece of that in there. Can I get just a little taste, you know, just to help me out and keep things going? And and their reluctance to do that is odd. Very much so. I don't think that was unreasonable request. You know, REM still, even when they broke up, they split everything four ways. Yeah, they, they, they kept that partnership and, going. And the only real reason they didn't continue as the original four is Bill Barry's health. Yeah, you know? but they still cut him in on every yeah. every financial aspect. You know, they considered him a member for life, you know, so to speak. Right. Another thing I, I did find interesting about, I didn't know that um, um, the band met Jimmy Page so early on. I think it's like 95 where they f- first bump into him. I didn't know the seed was planted then for what would I thought the uh Jimmy Page Black Crows tour that would 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 happen late ninety nine into two thousand. I thought that was more spontaneous than that. I didn't know that they had like a relationship with him before that. Yeah, through Robert Plant, who apparently treated them very well, much nicer than Aerosmith did uh when they were first coming up. Yeah, and so the the, the seed was planted for that page thing and the there almost started to be like this, like mutual admiration society between Jimmy and Steve, which you know he goes into later. We'll get into on our next episode, which is really kind of to me 
still seems to be the highlight of Steve's professional career is that. And uh, it just, you know, here's Jimmy Page, this guy, you know, there's so many myths about him, you know, and he's just this like sweet guy that just sounds like he's very easy to get along with. And it's just kind of like, want somebody to come play, play music with. Yeah. I mean, the, the impression I got from a lot of those, uh, big name bands that they, they, they milled around with the ones that would let them into their fold was that those guys were so high into their success that they were just looking for normalcy, you know, something a little more grounded, you know, let me just hang out with these guys who are a little bit more green and, and are still closer to the, the organic end of it. Cause we, you know, like in the case of like the stones maybe, or, or, or like, you know, I mean, Robert Plant. It was taking those guys around and showing them this and showing them that and hanging out and like how really about embrace hey them. speaking of, how about when Robert Plant takes them to that uh, Muddy Waters Club in Chicago and the guy says we have our very special guest we have a guy that brought the blues to England Mr. Led Zeppelin is here give it up for Mr. Led Zeppelin <laughs> and how like there's a lot of rock stars that would have got offended by that and they just talk about how Robert Plant was like, Oh yeah, how is everybody? And sat back down, you know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, going yeah, so going back to Paige, yeah, that was very cool that that started started kind of growing over the years. Um, what would eventually be, you know, to me one of the greatest live albums of all time. That is. That that album is very, very underrated. And I'm glad to see it's getting a uh a sort of remastered vinyl release coming up uh, very Audio shortly. File version, yeah, I've got it pre. I've got it pre-ordered. Do you? Um, I do believe I have pre-ordered that. Um, I get confused sometimes. After I lose track I of what I'll have pre-ordered, and like I'll come home from work, and my wife's like, "You got some more records." You know? Yeah, yeah. I'll. Co- it's actually nice. I'll come home. I say, "Oh man, I ordered this so long ago. I forgot about it." You know? Right, <laughs> it's right. Nice bonus for the day, you know. I know, and I and I I get these random. Um, these random uh, packages in the mail from Port Jefferson, New York, that uh, that always seem to make my day. Uh, don't tell people where the uh, the compound is because they'll come knocking on my door. You know <laughs> what I mean? So, but uh, um, yeah, you know, actually, um, um, that was one of the first things I uh, I sent you was the uh, got the, back from vacation. The- yeah, and it was on, uh, and I've offered to send it back to you since. Um, the uh, the audio file version is coming out, so if you want it back, I'll be glad to send it back to you. No, very early on, you told me you were building that Black Crow's vinyl collection, and uh, I, you know, you got to have all the pieces to that puzzle, man. <laughs> uh, so that's 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 yours for the duration. Um, I just hope you 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 play it, you know, because I I like I like records to be played, you know. Oh, I have I have played it, and uh, you're. Uh, <laughs> Your on a side note, your autographed copy of Blind Melon Soup. I'll be putting that in the mail this week. I got to hang out with them as oh. we're recording this a week ago. So, uh, let me just explain to our our listening audience out there. You don't understand. Like outside of the Black Crows and things, I was very big into Blind Melon. I uh, still am. I, I I love them, but I love that album soup and this this man my friend david here was kind enough to while he was doing something for his other podcast um got them to sign a, a vinyl copy of that for me uh, uh that's fantastic uh, hey, i can't thank you enough a quick, for that. a quick side note before we get back to the crows so we went to see blind melon and rogers stevens the guitar player one of the founding members um i had interviewed him on my other podcast digital kill the radio star for our 100th episode 
uh, because a lot of people may not know three-fifths of the band is from Mississippi. And so I wanted to have a Mississippi artist on our podcast. And he doesn't do interviews, really. And he agreed to do it because from his home state. And so they were playing in Arkansas, and he sent me a text that, hey, man, we're going to be in Arkansas get up here, you know, you can, you know, hang out with us. So uh, me and my buddy Chris that does my other podcast with me, uh, you know, he had passes waiting on us and the show's over with and they had like some meet and greets and stuff. So we just kind of hang around and he kept coming by. I said, hey guys, don't leave, don't leave, just stay. So when it's all said and done, uh, they're having the band dinner, uh, you know, afterwards. And he was like, uh, I just said, hey man, it was nice to meet you. You know, we don't want to uh, t- you know, take up any of your time, you know, we really appreciate you. No, 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 come come in here and have dinner with the band. And so we go backstage, and it's me and Chris with the entire band, and they have this big buffet laid out. And then um, all of their family from Mississippi basically had come up, uh, Rogers and uh, Glenn, the two remaining members from Mississippi. And, like, Rogers' mom's back there, and, you know, and then me and my buddy Chris just kind of standing there, and he was like, "Man, this is kind of awkward." I said, "I don't care if it's awkward or not. We're backstage with the family and, and with Blind Melon. Like, I'm staying back here until they kick me out." Yeah. And so, uh, anyway, we uh, we wound up staying back there about an hour, and then um, uh, we cut out. But yeah, so I, I bought the album Soup on vinyl, and uh, all the living members that were there that recorded that album signed it for Ian. So I was glad to get that. Uh, get that for him and I'll, like i said i'll i'll get that in the mail to you this week so we discussed amorica let's why don't you move us in a little bit to the the three snakes recording because I, I i found a lot of that interesting i did as well um one thing i did want to touch upon just quickly before mm-hmm. we we run over to that is it's something that it, uh, personally i've always noticed this over the years and i've always thought that's got to be a point of contention it's somewhere but I never heard about it, but it, the book confirmed it for me. And it started um, on the Amorica tour is how loud Rich plays on stage. And I always was like, man, he is so loud. I mean, to the point where in here it says that um, he, he wasn't even in the PA. They just went off of his volume off stage and mixed the PA around it, which was – it's unbelievable to me because I, I – I, when I go to see the Crows, I don't know about you, I stand. I always stand on Rich's side. It's me the most too. interesting place to be for me. I like to watch him play because I like to – as a guitar player, I'm very fascinated with his style. And I, I just – he's kind of leading the band, and that, uh, that's very interesting for me to watch. So, But it's loud over there. I mean, I saw Hookah Brown in a club here on Long Island. It was a, you know, a place – you know, basically a glorified bar. Yeah, and he's playing full volume in there. I mean, I, I, I don't know how I still have any hearing after that, but uh, well, so it's, he's always loud. You know, and a lot of people have said that really strained Chris's voice because he had to sing over that. And then right. Steve, you know, Steve hit those drums hard. He did, and he and he had to try to overcome that. Yeah, I, that was one of the things I meant to bring up because we'd always heard that that was an issue and had to be a nightmare for the sound guy. Yeah, and I always thought too, like that's. I always thought to myself, like, during that, uh, especially, like, the 05 and forward period, like, that's got to be putting the hurt on Chris's voice. And it, it became kind of apparent to me when they would break off and either do, like, a full acoustic show or they did the Brothers of a Feather stuff and it was quieter and Chris could adapt differently, how much better his voice came off. So it's it's weird to me that he wouldn't just 
acquiesce to that request and just like you know take it from 10 to uh to nine you know or something you know it just Very may weird. have been like his way of being defiant toward chris yeah i mean you're probably absolutely right but it's it's kind of in this period as we're going into the the three snakes era which they started recording that i believe november or december of 95 but going into this period is when the heroin abuse started pretty heavily for some of the guys in the band. Yeah, and so they had um, they had a kind of reduced budget and they rented a house in Atlanta and he talks about how I think it was um Colt, Rich and Steve all kind of stayed together and then Chris, Mark and Ed all kind of stayed together cuz at that point um you know, we we'd always heard that that's a drug album. I mean, just from a lyrical standpoint, kind of a vibe standpoint, but it was a real drug album from the standpoint of what they were doing when they recorded it. But Steve also makes it sound like people weren't out of control during the recording process that there was, you know, sometimes Chris wouldn't show up and they're like, okay, we're just going to go home. It didn't seem like it was as problematic as one would think it would be. No, but it also does illustrate um, the beginning of the end from Mark Ford, at least in, in the Black Crows, his original run in the Black Crows. And to me, it's it's very heartbreaking to read this about Mark because, um, you know, uh, for a time I knew Mark a little bit more personally than most. I'm not saying we, uh, you know, we were uh, going to each other's family functions or anything like that, but he's a sweet guy. He's a very honest guy. He's a very nice guy. And it's it's very sad to me to read some of the things that he got caught up in and, and the effect it had on him. And, um, you know, I ultimately think um, they did Mark a disservice um, because they, they, there perhaps was a moment where they could have helped him a bit more. But then also, you know, on the flip side of the coin, when Mark exits the band, they do leave the door open, especially Pete Angelus leaves the door open for him. Mark, if you need anything, get, when you get yourself together, please call. We'll help you in any way. And you know, Mark didn't reach out either. So uh, you know, for whatever reason, that's a personal thing. But the the part um, in the book about them confronting Mark and Mark crying and you know, saying "I love you, Chris," and then Chris reportedly saying "I didn't say I loved you," like that kind of ripped my heart out. It did because what I know of Mark. I mean, honestly, I I, I kind of uh, welled up a little bit and thinking about it now, I get a little. Because, like I said, Marcus, Marcus, Mark, and 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 he was so it, it, he comes off as so vulnerable um, during that period, and how I mean, obviously, in those moments, you know, where they have their breakdowns and they have heart to hearts and things like that, but really, they kind of just left Mark out there to his own devices in a lot of ways. I, there's a there's a brief passage in there about how they're sitting. I, I believe it's Steve and Chris sitting in a bar in England and um, Mark comes in not realizing that they're in there. He goes and drinks like four pints of beer, has like six shots of something and heads out. And they speculated that he might've been trying to, uh, he was withdrawing from heroin and just trying to deal with it. And it's like, this man is alone in, in a foreign country going through heroin withdrawals. And, 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 and it's just, it comes off as so lonely I feel so bad for Mark, you know, especially when you consider just take the personal side out of it. They became what they became largely because of him at that point. 
You know, the 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 people yeah. the people that are flocking to ten and twenty shows a tour, a lot of it has to do with the fact of Mark Ford's playing, and it's you know they're musicians and you know they know things they they can pick up on things that you and I probably can't pick up on. They knew how good they were with him. You know, they knew exactly. how good they were with him. And so, to me, the smart thing would have been, let's just, hey, let's call it a day for a little bit, and let's get him and Ed cleaned up. You know, like he said, you know, Ed was never going to be completely clean, but, you know, he was going to be cleaner. Um, and then, you know, why not get that taken care of? Because Mark, at that point, was a really big draw for them. Well, I mean, think about it. Think about 2005 when they're putting the reunion back together. What really set that into full gear? It was the announcement that Mark Ford was coming back. And why is that? Do, do because... you do you remember the post? Yeah, it's Ford. It's Ford. And like, yeah. I, I remember I was in graduate school and I remember like, oh my gosh. Because nobody yeah. knew who it was. No, and it was, to me, that was that was a moment of when that really went from this is going to be cool to this is going to be unbelievable. And why is that? Because Rich and Mark are known as one of the premier guitar duos and they always will be. Those guys will always be married musically because they play off of each other so well. Um, and so to, to, to just kind of hang him out to dry at a moment to need a moment of need seems a little rough. Um, not to say that, Mark is without fault in the situation. You know, he knew what he was doing. He knew what he was getting into. But, he, you know, he kind of they kind of hung him out to dry a little bit in 97. And uh, it's it becomes that much more apparent in the in the course of the, the story in the book. And also, it seems like I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it almost seems like Chris. I mean, Steve is alluding to the fact that Mark and Chris were kind of not in love with doing heroin, but it fascinated them, you know, cause he talks about how Mark said all of his heroes did it, you know? And, um, that to me is, is, a, is, is really, really sad. And, um, you know, it, it just seems like during those sessions, there were some, you know, he kind of acts like the writing was on the wall of what was about to happen. And also during those sessions, basically Johnny Colt didn't play on three snakes but he, he, yeah. was like, he was like, he would, Colt would come to the studio every day and do his yoga. It's like, hey, I'm ready whenever I want. And then, you know, um, didn't he and Colt have an agreement that, no, when John, when Steve was thinking about leaving, Colt said, if you go, I go, or something like that? Yeah. And uh, it's I always had heard, you know, uh, I think Rich had mentioned it offhandedly in a, in a much more recent interview, you know, within the last uh, 10, 15 years. Um but it hadn't really been touched upon. But yeah, he Rich does the bass playing on Three Snakes because that's the way Jack Joseph Puig wanted them to cut the uh, the basic tracks. They you know uh, it had to do with that initially. But so Johnny's just hanging around, uh, and you you could you know in hindsight you can see how the guy throughout the course of that probably just came to terms with the fact that he had run his course with the band when he also doesn't seem to be too upset about it. No, because I really think he mentally had come to terms with it, uh, which is, 
a credit to his mental health. He's he was very healthy about the whole thing. All right, and so I know this is your favorite Crows album. Uh, before we kind of wrap everything up, because we're getting kind of to that point, what about that recording process and that touring cycle stuck out with you? Since I mean that that is your favorite Crows album. Yes, it is, and the the thing that uh, grabbed me a bit with regards to the actual recording the record when Steve heard it, he said he couldn't really get his head around how much was packed into that record, like sonically, because when they were recording it, he seemed it as see, saw it as more of a uh, bare bones kind of affair. Like it would sound more basic and more live and more straightforward, but it seemed like Jack had mixed pretty much anything. Anybody had gone, Hey, let's try this. He kind of mixed it all in there at the end, which you know, as I'm as I'm reading the book, whatever period I was in in the book, I try to be playing the associated album at the time. So I'm listening to it. And I'm noticing that it really is a busy record for as as kind of stark as it sounds on the surface. There's a lot going on there, and um, you know, I, I I love that record. I always will. It's uh, I the the thing about it to me, they seem to be a little more disciplined recording it. Which was odd. Yeah, it was a little bit easier for them, especially since they were, the the hard drugs had worked their way in. Mm. One of the things that I found fascinating about it is he talked about at this point. We realized we had were growing, we're taking on all these new fans that from the jam band scene, and how there seemed to be this constant kind of push and pull about who should we cater to. And Chris was just constantly wanting to cater to those new people that were following them around from multiple shows and, you know, changing up the set list and stuff like that. And they have that tour and then they, um, they go out on the, uh, what was the name of the tour? Um, uh, it was the further festival. Yeah. And the hippies don't like them playing loud. And, you know, there's all the, you know, I've got a bootleg where, Chris is like, hey, I don't know if you know, but Jimi Hendrix played really loud. Uh, you know, and almost, I get the sense that it, it, Chris almost came to a, a point to where he realized they weren't accepting him as much as the band as he wanted them to. And it almost that rebellious spirit was almost like, you know what? Because if you look at a lot of those, uh, those, those later shows, you know, it's like seven or eight songs. They pack a decent amount of stuff off of uh, Moneymaker on there. And you wonder if, like, he was like, you know, an F you to everybody. We're going to, you don't like us, we're really going to play conventional loud rock and roll, which is what most of those people were not there to hear. If this time period was the period in which they started playing different set lists every night, more power to it, because that's one of the best aspects I always appreciated about the Crows was I could see them multiple nights in the same city and get something different each night, you know, whereas... You know, I was a, a very big, still am to this day, very big fan of Van Halen. But if I saw Van Halen two nights in a row, it was the same set list each night, often down to the stage banter. Yeah, the you know, stick, they had yeah. that worked out, you know, especially when Roth is there. He's got that yeah. worked out, man. But, you know, um, so I always appreciated the changing up of the set list because you never knew what you were going to get. It was kind of like, you know, what's what do I got in store tonight? You know, you didn't know. And that's fantastic. I was surprised to read though that on the on that tour, and especially on the on the further dates and stuff, you know, ninety six through ninety seven, that they weren't drawing as much. Like it was almost 
a really abysmal number of that they were drawing in each city, and I, I I find that surprising because because that time period has such a high regard amongst people that it wasn't a big draw. I well, thought that they were riding high at that point, you know. Well, that's what he even says. You know, most he said if you ask most of our diehard fans, they think that was our best time frame, and right. he's like the band doesn't think that, and it was also the first time that I really think you started to see. The economic they started to see the economic handwriting on the wall that this wasn't sustainable. No, and it was it, it. That's that's probably what would lead to some future decisions, uh, which we will of course get to uh, when we when we hit that particular time period. But it, it if, if if anything, reading about the ninety six to ninety seven time period uh, did for me. It was it led me to understand how they got to that, you know, that later period. And, you know, it kind of, it's like putting in the missing pieces of a puzzle that you've had missing pieces in for so long, you know? Um, so, you know, to I me, that was the most eye opening part of the book was how by your side came to be and why it sounded the way it did. It really made me, it connected a lot of dots. Yeah, I mean, I, I just uh, came across the passage you were saying there. They, uh, there's a big chunk of our fan base that believes the undisputed golden age of the Black Crows is a one-year span from the summer of 96 to the summer of 97. In a way, it probably is. The band was certainly as ambitious as it ever been, but I preferred the Amorica era, where we played a bit more of the hard-rocking stuff. So there was still a great divide then. You know, you, you like to think of them as unified in whatever approach they take, but... Not everybody was on the same page with the jams and things like that. And it's surprising because of how well they played during that period that it wasn't everybody's high point, you know? Yeah. I always thought the whole band was on board with that direction, but it seemed like it was just Chris. Yeah. I mean, uh, I believe Steve even mentions that, uh, you know, he had a, not a hard time, but, you know, he bared a lot of the weight of carrying those jams, as you had mentioned a short while ago. And, Again, it says here, um, uh, our hardcore fans, the one who collect bootlegs and have every concert we've ever played, revere this period of the band. And some of those recordings are great, but on stage in the moment, more often than not, any hint of a collective spirit was dying. So it's it's so it's such a, a weird thing to me that this period that everybody loves, they're falling apart. You know, it's such a it's such a weird weird uh, yin yang situation. You know, exactly. But, you know, ultimately, what happened at the end of this, uh, you know, they lose, you know, two significant members of this band, and they don't know if they're going to even be able to continue. And I didn't realize that that was such a major thought in their heads. Can we go on? Well, but before, before they lost them, though, they went in and recorded band. Of course. Which they all seem to really love. And Steve seems to say we should have just released it as it was. Yeah, which ultimately that's what they did. I mean, they, you know, they, Paul Stacy gave it a little uh, sheen, but they were very big on that, and so much so that they thought that when they shifted to Columbia Records that Columbia was going to be big on it, and that to me is the confusing part, because as a rock fan that's a fantastic record. From a record executive standpoint, that record stinks, because there's no definite hit on that album Mm-mm. nope well Ian um, uh, what do you say we save everything else for next time 
Stay tuned for more Happy Days.
Good work, guys. I mean, you were really great. Thanks, Al. Sensational. Hey, anyone try the fish tonight? That's not so good, Al. Not so good, Al. Yeah, yeah. 